So I'm pleased to introduce our next speaker, Jeffrey McCurry, who's come all the way from America, one of the few people in the And he's going to talk to us about uh, uh, the thought of putting. Uh, this is the trouble with. Yeah, essence is back into existence. So uh, thanks very much, Jeffrey. Sure. Um, before beginning, I want to thank Keith and Ross and the organizers of the conference. Um, so the title, the full title, is The Therapy of Putting Essences Back into Existence, Wittgenstein, Merleau-Ponty, and Phenomenology as a Way of Life. Wittgenstein and Merleau-Ponty help us see phenomenology not as, first of all, an abstractly ideational project, so much as a therapeutic, evocative discourse a rhetoric and logic for an art of living, an ethics meant to reconnect us with phenomenological life, meant to invite us to embrace phenomenology as a way of life. First, Wittgenstein, who says in the Philosophical Investigations, what is your aim in philosophy? To show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. The notion that Wittgenstein's philosophy is therapeutic is accepted by almost all scholars of Wittgenstein, but what it means to say so can be unclear. One understanding is this. Wittgenstein's philosophy is concerned with philosophical beliefs, and good philosophy, philosophy that is therapeutic, is concerned with substituting helpful philosophical beliefs for unhelpful philosophical beliefs. That is, with providing, represent, with providing perspicuous representations of whatever phenomena happens to be under investigation, such as language. Healthy human understanding is human understanding that has arrived at a set of perspicuous representations of phenomena. So consider the famous meaning as use passage in the philosophical investigations. For a large class of cases, though not for all, in which we employ the word meaning, it can be defined thus. The meaning of a word is its use in the language. Here it is helpful to remember that Wittgenstein speaks in culture and value of the philosopher as the inventor of new similes. Quote, a good simile refreshes the intellect. So according to this take on Wittgenstein's aims, his discussion of language is a philosophical discussion meant to replace a bad or inadequate simile with a better one. The simile in use for the nature and significance of language has been the mirror or picture. Just as a good mirror or picture reflects reality outside of it, so language, when it is operating properly, reflects the world outside of language. But, Wittgenstein says, there are myriad ways in which language does not function this way. To use Wittgenstein's own famous example, when a bricklayer says slab, he is not referring to anything. He is making a request to be given a slab so that he continue, can continue his bricklaying work. If someone said to herself when she heard a bricklayer say slab, quote, oh, that bricklayer must see a slab over there, or oh, that bricklayer must have a mental image of a slab, then this person would radically misunderstand the situation and the meaning of the word in this instance. So language's meaning is its use. It's requesting, prodding, threatening, comforting, etc., all of which are forms of what Wittgenstein called language games. In this way of, of taking the meaning of language, language is seen not as a mirror, but as a tool. So Wittgenstein's philosophical therapy on this account runs this way. Philosophical thinking has a preferred simile for understanding a given experience, such as language use, but upon close reflection, this preferred simile comes to be seen as radically inadequate or even erroneous for a wide range of the very phenomena it is trying to make comprehensible. So Wittgenstein offers another simile to relieve the pressure on philosophical thinking when it gets itself into what he elsewhere calls a mental cram, 
that results from trying to have one simile fit all circumstances. Wittgenstein also speaks of pictures. In his words, quote, a picture held us captive and we could not get outside it for it lay in our language and language seemed to repeat it to us inexorably. By making conscious the way our language has been bewitchingly been working behind our backs, so to speak, how the metaphor of language's picture overdetermines the entire scope of our thinking about language, we can begin to think afresh. I don't think this picture tells the whole story, though, and to suggest why I want to go to the movies with Wittgenstein for a moment. I would like to suggest that Wittgenstein loved the movies because they afforded him immediate contact with experiential life. After teaching in Cambridge, teaching which Wittgenstein did not enjoy, he would go to the movies. While a philosopher's going to the movies is not necessarily philosophically interesting, Wittgenstein's movie-going is of philosophical interest. His movie-going was interesting because it was his way of ceasing to do theoretical philosophy, ideational philosophy. Here's Norman Malcolm in his famous Ludwig Wittgenstein, a memoir. Quote, Wittgenstein was always exhausted by his lectures. He was also revolted by them. He felt disgusted with what he had said and himself and with himself. Often he would rush off to a cinema immediately after the class ended. On the way to the cinema, Wittgenstein would buy a bun or cold pork pie and munch it while he watched the film. He insisted on sitting in the very first row of seats so that the screen would occupy his entire field of vision and his mind would be turned away from the thoughts of the lecture and his feeling of revulsion. Once he whispered to me, quote, this is like a shower bath. His observation of the film was not relaxed or detached. He leaned forward in his seat and rarely took his eyes off the screen. He hardly ever uttered comments on the episodes of the film and did not like his companion to do so. He wished to become totally absorbed in the film, no matter how trivial or artificial it was, in order to free his mind temporarily from the philosophical thoughts that tortured and exhausted him." End quote. Wittgenstein found his lectures repellent, even sickening, but just as importantly, Malcolm says, Wittgenstein found himself repellent and even sickening to himself in giving these lectures. But why? And why did he believe that the movies would provide him the best balm to relieve these feelings about himself? Wittgenstein's movie-going was a way not of turning his mind off. It was a way of turning his philosophical mind off, a way of ceasing to do philosophy in any traditional sense at all. He sat in the front row so his entire experiential field would be taken up in the movie in order that he could be absorbed in something other than philosophy. Even as he watched the film, he did so not as a philosopher of cinema or a movie critic, simply as a moviegoer. He did not comment upon or interpret the film, because doing so would have been a distancing of himself from the experience of watching the film. He did not sit further back in the theater because he might have seen the light stream coming from the projector. He did not want to know how the images on the screen were produced, which would be a kind of explanatory philosophy. He also did not fetishize the images on the screen as images, which would have been a different variety of reifying a medium as an artifact in its own right. He did not want to know what a movie was about, i.e. its theme. He wanted to experience the life in the movie through the cinematic images. He wanted to experience the movie, not to vitiate this experience by experience distant reflections of any kind. Here remember that Wittgenstein was disgusted with himself as a person. Movie-going was a way for Wittgenstein to dissociate himself as a human being from himself as a philosopher. My hypothesis is that watching movies allowed Wittgenstein to experience, through this art form, life in its pre-reflective and non-reflective spontaneous immediacy. In doing so, he became a different person, a person living not a philosophical life but a phenomenological life. He escaped the lecture room, 
and he refuses to interpret or critique the movie while watching it because he is desired to remain within the spontaneous immediacy of lived experience as vicariously undergone in this art. When we watch a movie, if it is somehow worth watching, we can speak of getting lost in the movie. We cease to notice our surroundings, the friends accompanying us, the rest of our work and life responsibilities, our psychological past and future. We experience the life that the film offers to us. We become lost in its visual, auditory, and narrative phenomena. A kind of radical immediacy of experience becomes possible. Although the experience is in a sense vicarious and therefore remains at some distance from concrete life, it is a gesture in the direction of phenomenological life that Wittgenstein wishes to enter. My wager then is that Wittgenstein tried to write his philosophy as a way to get himself and us to go to the movies, so to speak, as a way of returning him and his readers to concrete, immediate, spontaneous experience. Experience not only before life distances itself from this experience to play speculative games about causality, explanation, or theoretical metaphysics, but also even from phenomenological philosophy as an end in its own right, rather than as a kind of philosophy as an art of living. That is to say, Wittgenstein's major achievement is, first, not to invite us to speculative metaphysics, or even to a reflective consideration of certain kinds of experience, but to open up for us the realm of experience in all its registers, not merely to describe experience as essences or grammars, but rather to invite us to move towards an existential embrace of experience in these essences and grammars. Wittgenstein offers not a reflective philosophy, but a lived ethics. Wittgenstein's philosophical therapy is meant to liberate us not only from bad philosophy into good philosophy, but out of philosophy altogether, except in a hortatory sense, into the concrete experience of self, other, and world. A concrete experience that involves, for Wittgenstein, grammars like epistemic and ethical groundlessness and risky creativity, from which we try to protect ourselves all too often. Now Merleau-Ponty, who is famous for his remark in the preface to Phenomenology of Perception that, quote, Phenomenology is a philosophy which puts essences back into existence. Again, we have more than one possibility of meaning. One understanding would be to investigate reflectively into what exactly are the essential structures or logics that actually do define the phenomenon of perception as an experience in its own right. Now, figures such as Aquinas or Locke speak of phantasms or images or sensations in our minds. These are theoretical and explanatory metaphysical ways of doing philosophy. They are after explanatory understandings of perception that outline the causal structures behind and beneath perception. They ask, what makes perception possible? They offer an essence of the logic of perception that does not stick with the existence of perception itself, just as it is an experience in its own right. It is a form of what Merleau-Ponty calls pensée de serval, which can be translated as thought that flies above, or below or beneath, or behind the phenomenon it is trying to understand. Rather than this kind of philosophy, then, phenomenology would turn to a rigorous description and clarification of the experience itself just as it presents itself. So we would clarify that perception just in its own right as an experience has features or essences like the following, embodiment, holism, focus, spatiality, temporality, and meaningfulness. We would do phenomenology to become clearer about the nature of perception just as the experience that it is. Rather than take the pensée de serval approach of speculating about sense data, or in the alternative approach of rationalism, speculating about something like Leibniz's monads, we focus on the experience itself. The problem with this interpretation, though, is that it may be its own form of pensée de serval. 
Here phenomenology would be taken as a philosophy involving knowledge or representation of experience, a reflective descriptive, descriptive scientific logos about structures of phenomena. Phenomenological speech and writing would be a mode of signifying or representing a form of concrete, actual, lived, and living experience. So we would have the phenomenon that has a certain logos or form to it, within it, and as it, and then the phenomenological task would be to represent this logic as knowledge. But what if it isn't knowledge, reflective knowledge, that is Merleau-Ponty's ultimate aim? What if he meant his phenomenological discourse, just as such, to be applied to life as a kind of ethics, a kind of exhortation? What if phenomenology can be a hortatory discourse inviting us into a certain way of life, phenomenological life, or phenomenology as a way of life? Here I want to suggest that Merleau-Ponty may be setting himself against an understanding of phenomenology as cognitive knowledge or representation, even of experience. For him, putting essences back into existence is not just a prerogative of thought, but of life. In at least two places he makes his aims evident. First, he writes in Phenomenology of Perception, quote, the fundamental philosophical act would thus be to return to the lived world beneath the objective world. It would be to give back to the thing its concrete physiognomy, to the organisms their proper manner of dealing with the world, and to subjectivity its historical inherence. It would be to rediscover phenomena. It would be to awaken perception and to thwart the ruse by which perception allowed itself to be forgotten as a fact and as perception. Is it too much to hear in these words not only a call to a new kind of philosophy as ideational, but to a new experience of life, a life that stays near to concrete experience rather than finding ways, including intellectual ways, to distance itself from it. A new experience of experience, so to speak. We can also see what Merleau-Ponty might mean when we look at his small essay, Man the Hero, in Sense and Nonsense. He writes of Saint-Exupéry's pilot, quote, he recovers his own being to the extent to which he runs into danger. Over Arras, in the fire of the anti-aircraft guns, when every second of continuing life is as miraculous as a birth, he feels invulnerable because he is in things at last. He has left his inner nothingness behind, and death, if it comes, will reach him right in the thick of the world. But perhaps he will be wounded. Perhaps he will have to lie long hours on the ground dying. The same cruel consolation will still be offered him, to be and think like a living person for as long as he does live. I don't think Merleau-Ponty is glorifying war here at all. He is saying that the pilot recovers his life in the midst of concrete experience. He is completely invested in life as it is spontaneously, immediately, effectively, bodily, and concretely lived. He may die, but he will do so after living. He will have experienced life and time as its own kind of miracle. He will not merely have had a thought about life and time as a miracle, he will have experienced it as a miracle. For Merleau-Ponty, such life as lived will embrace experiential grammars of embodiment, temporality, and the creative wildness of being. My wager is that like Wittgenstein, Merleau-Ponty wanted not only to think about experience, but to enter into experience more deeply, when experience is, paradoxically, what we are not always very good at experiencing. His writing, like Wittgenstein's, was his own attempt to do so for himself, and as we read it, for us too. Merleau-Ponty invites us into heroism not of military glory, but of staying with the phenomenological stream or plane of life, just as it presents ourself, as it is closer to ourself in some sense than we are to ourselves. To live into the temporality, ambiguity, and the creative wildness of being itself. Wittgenstein and Merleau-Ponty's writings call us to phenomenological life, to phenomenology as a way of life. 
Their writings are descriptive only insofar as they are ethical and evocative. Reading their work should help us not only think differently, but live differently. In this way, phenomenological language, including this paper, is and should be a self-consuming artifact. And so for more than one reason, it's important to stop. Thank you. Thank you.